Welcome and good morning, Trinity Bible Church. Uh, this morning, a little bit different, going to have a little bit of a, a government discussion before we enter into the study today. For those of you that are excited, news watchers, no, not that type of government. Uh, talking particularly about the polity of Trinity Bible Church, especially for those of you who may have been here for a long time, have no idea what that means, or those who are visiting, who are like, finally, polity. And so... Uh, what that is, is a discussion on the government of the church itself, how it operates, how it runs. Uh, Trinity Bible Church is a elder-run church. Uh, it means that uh, elders, overseers, as particularly seen in the descriptions in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 and also throughout the New Testament, uh, elders are chosen from amongst the existing congregation to shepherd the flock, the, the rest of the congregation, but they're a part of and accountable to the congregation. Uh, we particularly have a um, more historic model of what that looks like, meaning we do not have a first among equals or a CEO model where one elder, particularly or generally the senior or teaching pastor, uh, has a little bit more authority or a higher authority than the rest of the other elders. Rather, we have the elders are co-equal in every way, uh, where in the midst of that, we lean into each other's strengths and bolster each other's weaknesses, that depending on and how you find as you minister alongside one another. Now, that's the, the polity of the church in terms of that's the government of the church. But in terms of, of things that we've done that are um, more practical in nature is in within the bylaws of the church itself, we have term limits for each elder. And so the reason for that is that um, whether you are a teaching or vocational elder like myself and Bo, or you are a non-vocational or ruling elder like, like the elders like, like Mike and Stuart and, and uh, Philip and Fred, uh, you, you have a overwhelming responsibility when you think of the congregation. And so, and what your responsibilities are uh, for overseeing and shepherding the flock of God, being under shepherds and having to one day go before God and give account uh, for the people under your care. And so as such, we have term limits so that people can rest. They, it runs as, there's a six-year term, but it runs in two chunks of three years. And so in three years, we if, if the elders want to continue on, then we put their names out for reaffirmation. We recently did that with Bo and Mike and Philip, and that all went well, and they are now on for the next three years. But also we have a limit of six years, where at the end of six years, the elders must roll off for a year for a time of rest, where they become... Uh, whatever you want, fancy term you want to use, ex officio or whatever it might be. But all it simply means is that they will no longer be a voting elder and are not required to be at any of the elder meetings. But they remain elders within the congregation. So such an elder, to point out what that would be, would be Russ Parkin, who is an elder of the church who is off the session, which is another phrase to say the elders who are voting elders at the table, yet he remains an elder in the congregation. So there's two of us who have come up on six years, and so we have to step down at that, and that is Stuart Holland and Ken Newman. And so, just making aware to everyone in the congregation, for the next year, 
Stuart and I will be non-voting elders like Russ. While we are not required to be at the meetings, there will be meetings that we will be at as to the discretion of the elders who are currently at the table. Now, that was all just a lot of information to let you know what was going on with the leadership of the church. And if you have any questions about that, um, between mouthfuls of your food this afternoon at lunch, feel free to ask questions of, of any of the existing elders uh, that you might have or um, write an email. Uh, don't text questions. I will not respond. Although phone call is good. Uh, and... Another thing to talk about is the elders came off of retreat this past weekend, um, a week ago. Uh, we came out of it with really one central focus, with many things that, that are, are surrounded, not even maybe not even attached to that, things that have to do with more, that are more pragmatic in nature. But the, the, the big spiritual over kind of idea, arching idea that brought about much prayer and discussion was the need to kind of for the elders to centralize their focus for this year on the men of Trinity Bible Church. And there's several reasons for that. Uh, number one, family, families are under attack. And families will continue to be under attack. And so we want to bolster both men who are unmarried, men who are newly married, men who are veterans of marriage, And instill in them what the Bible calls them to be. Leaders in their family, priests of their family, protectors of their family. And, and in doing so, we believe, the elders believe, strengthening the men of the church strengthens the church. Amen. And so we'll be getting much more communications about that going out and much more things coming forward in the future. Also, there will be a one-time only. All the ladies are invited to have a discussion about how they are going to have a gigantic role in this in the church. Um, I will be lecturing you. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> There's one lady in the back shaking her head. Uh, we'll be having an open discussion about uh, the roles of men and women, both in marriage and in church, and, and what that looks like and why it looks that way and why it is not a simple thing and wanting to get feedback from all of the ladies as well. And so this is the focus of the church for this year. Again, another thing, if you have questions or comments for us, um, um, come and talk to any elders during lunch today or set up a time outside of that. There'll be a lot more information coming. So that doesn't happen very often. I owe myself five minutes. We are continuing now in the gospel according to Matthew. We remain in the 15th chapter. Coming off of a dialogue mostly about what makes one unclean. And what made one unclean according to Mishnah and according to the tradition of the Pharisees and the scribes. Particularly had to do with what you would see as, or what you would look at, as an outer working. Mainly, the washing of hands in ceremony, or the outward, whatever it may, outward means that uh, pretending of, of, or showing of the religious life. Rather, it was the inside that Jesus would say. 
that defiles a person, that which is building in their heart that comes out of the mouth rather than unclean food that goes in. And so he has a conflict with the leaders of the time. And now we find a place where it might seem out of the ordinary, this next story. But this next story is actually going to amplify this question of what makes one unclean. He's had contention with the leaders, namely the Pharisees and the scribes, about what makes one clean. And it is the the heart, the motivation of the heart by faith, faith in Christ, faith in Messiah, cleansed by the Spirit, regenerated, and now focused on pursuit of Him in life. And yet now, this strange story, it might seem to you, is going to be the exclamation point of doing away with this idea of the outside. Because what he's going to do, he's going to go about 30 miles north, take his disciples. They're still on this mission or this idea of getting away to a desolate place. And then remember, everywhere he goes, crowds show up. Everywhere he goes, opponents follow him. So now he's going to go outside of the principality of Judea to an area known as Tyre and Sidon, which is an ancient Phoenician city, two cities on the coast. They are infamous in the fact that they were part of Canaan when Joshua took Canaan. They were two cities that were never conquered. They were two cities that were never conquered during the time of the judges. They were two cities that were never conquered during the kingdom of Israel. Even Nebuchadnezzar, when he was wiping out everyone before taking the Jews into exile, could not complete a siege of Tyre and Sidon. And it wasn't until Alexander the Great, who made a flotilla all the way across a portion of the Mediterranean to get Tyre and Sidon to where they were finally conquered in the 300s B.C. But until that time, these proud people kept a heritage of being Canaanites. And so when we find this, you have to think of all of the history of what it meant for the Jews being in Canaan and there being Canaanites right there in the historical emphasis and the great prejudice that existed at this time. At this time, there existed great prejudice against the Samaritans because they were considered half-breeds and they were considered unclean. They were by, by birth unclean to the religious Jew. The Canaanites were far worse. So, I will read the portion that we're going to cover in its entirety giving you the opportunity after we read to pray. Pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to open your heart, your mind, to the truth of the word. Find the the broken places in yourself, the high places, the idols, the sin that you hold on to. May the word and the spirit show you clearly you need to break them. Reading now. From Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. 
And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of God. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as the church gathers, we come to celebrate the victory purchased through Christ our Savior. We come to celebrate the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, bestowed upon the church, salvation in Christ, worked out through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And now each of us who are in Christ are sealed together in community with others who are adopted sons and daughters. Put together as a family, one called to cast aside all differences that seem so great, Instead, being told the only important distinction about us now is our union in Christ. And through that shared union, we gather now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, represented in each of us as God's temple. And we come here in this location to lift up our praises through song to beseech you in prayer with the full knowledge of your presence, of our great need. And while we are saints, we continue in our foolishness. We continue in our rebellion. We are marred by our selfishness and sinfulness. Lord, may you break 
the idols in each and every one of our lives who bear our own faces. The celebration of indulgences, selfishness, and self-worship. God, break us through your word and your spirit. Call us to repentance of sin we have not been honest with. God, that we might be more and more formed in the image of Christ as we pursue you through a sanctifying work of the Spirit and the Word. And Lord, now I pray for the unbelievers in our midst. Eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear. But Lord, we pray that this morning is a day you have superintended in salvation history, purposed for their coming to faith in Christ. We pray now more than anything, Lord, that you would be glorified in our continued corporate worship here on the Lord's Day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Jesus, while pursuing and continuing what must be, can only be considered one of the greatest teachings and lessons to be given to his disciples. I'm going away for a place by myself to pray. And 15,000 people find him. I'm once again going by myself to pray up high. I'll come find you later. And he walks through a storm on top of water. Again, not magnifying his power, but suppressing his glory. And there are the disciples watching it, seeing it, hearing it. Now a confrontation with the religious leaders about what makes one unclean or what defiles a person. And they say, well, you have to ceremonially wash your hands this many times every time you eat. That's how we view, that's how we read the law, and so therefore that's what we should do. Jesus says, don't wash your hands and just eat. Rather, pay attention to the wickedness of your heart before it consumes you. He rebukes the leaders. He confounds them. And now he's like going to another secluded place, follow me outside of the boundaries of Jerusalem into the area of what was once a Canaanite stronghold. Now, just to be clear, this is not Jesus' first interaction with Gentiles. He's had it in chapter 8. In chapter 4, he talks about it. Remember in chapter 8, the centurion? That's a Roman legionnaire. You don't get much more Gentile than that, than being one of the occupying soldiers of Jerusalem. Also, when he heals the two demon-possessed men, that was in a place called Gerardine, was also a Gentile place. Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? Because about 50% of the population was Gentile. So how is this different? That's a good question. Let's find out. So Jesus went away from there, 
and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, this is that great phrase, watch, look, something's about to happen. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So the way this is written is to make you say, he goes to Tyre and Sidon, which would have first have been a question mark. Why are you going there? The next part is Matthew writing, now pay attention. Behold, a Canaanite woman. Not just a Canaanite, but a woman. We've talked about this way back in the beginning, particularly with the, the, where the disciples, how they would have been raised with Mishnah. There were all these rules about interacting with women. And it was like, don't, don't talk to them. Don't be around them too much. There was parts in the Mishnah where if you were a man next to a woman, there's a high possibility she might infect you with her spiritual ickiness. Now, that's not a direct quote, but it was the general idea. And so it makes maybe more sense when you're, if you didn't know that, is if you think about the ministry of Jesus, how often these disciples were ready to rebuke women when they came near Jesus. That's the teacher. Don't give him your ickiness. And yet, remember, this is purposed. Everywhere Jesus goes, every interaction he makes, there's purpose in it. It's not accidental where he goes. It's not accidental, these interactions. This is God's sovereign hand moving history at this point to show these men who would come to lead the church what mercy was, what grace was. And what the purpose of the gospel was. So here comes this woman, who is also a Canaanite. She spots Jesus. And the way this is written is to make you understand, she's running and screaming. And and the way that it's written in the Greek is, it's called imperfect. The idea is that it wasn't, she's like, Jesus, have mercy on me. It was continuous Jesus, have mercy on me. We know the next line is Jesus ignoring her. She keeps doing it over and over again. She recognizes him, and we know this somehow by the words that she uses to describe him. And now stop and think back. Where has Jesus had a reception like this within the boundaries of Jerusalem? Israel was the nation, the city on a hill. Paul talks about the grafting in of the Gentiles, talking about the root running deep, though. The root was was the Jewish people, and it was the word they'd received, and it was the patriarchs, and the histories, and the covenants, and pointing them to the purpose of waiting on this one who would arrive to rescue them. He arrives and they do not believe. He arrives and they ridicule. They like a free meal, but then they want to see more tricks. Show us more stuff, Jesus. Do more things. Oh, ye of little faith. He goes to a place he hasn't been before. There was no Facebook page going, Jesus is coming to Tyre and Sidon today to the Jesus tour. 
He shows up and she knows him. And look what she says. Have mercy on me. She doesn't tell him all the things she's done. She doesn't introduce herself by introducing her good works. She recognizes Messiah and knows her own estate. And so the only thing proper at that time is to cry, mercy. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. This Canaanite woman acknowledges Jesus as Messiah. No law, no prophets, no writings, no traditions, other than that is a historic enemy. The Canaanites were worshipers of foreign gods, multiple gods. At this point in history, they were a mishmash of Phoenicians, Canaanites, Greeks, Romans, and on and on and on. And and they retained a multitude of deities that they worshipped. Here Jesus is going for a stroll with his disciples after he, he, he takes the Pharisees' theology apart and teaches once again what it is to be faithful. What makes one clean and unclean? And here comes a foreign woman who all of Israel and his disciples would have seen as unclean. Unclean in every possible way. The fact that she was a woman. The fact that she was a Canaanite. There was not one redeeming thing they would have seen in her. And they show it. She cries out continuously, O Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And it says, but he did not answer her a word. Meaning, as she's following him, the implication of the text is she's back here, and she would have trailed behind the disciples, crying out to get his attention to heal her daughter. And the idea or the picture is Jesus just keeps walking and ignoring her. But she continues to follow. Now, you're the son of David. You are Lord. Heal my daughter. Have mercy on me. And so imagine that if you've ever been annoyed by anyone. No, none of you ever get annoyed by people. Now imagine a picture in your mind. And this is an unclean exercise. Never mind. I don't want you to put a picture in your mind. This person really annoys me. Um, just imagine being anywhere with your family. And someone... <laughs> I'm just going to move on. All right. <laughs> Nothing's going to work right there. But here's, the man, here's this man, seen as a man only, Jesus, by the people who should have been expecting Messiah. And here he comes to a place, and all this woman sees is Messiah. And so she's following him. She knows who he is. He doesn't even respond to her. She doesn't care. 
She keeps following him. And his disciples don't stop and go, Lord, will you just heal her because you do it all the time? They're like, sorry, try not to laugh. And his disciples came and begged him, send her away for she is crying out after us. When a girl or a woman cries, most men, first response is, oh God, make it stop. How do I make it stop? I'm going to try this one go-to. It's not working. I'm going to try this. It's still not working. Please, God, make, make it stop. Why is she still crying? Oh, that's, that's just me. Okay. That is not just me. Whether it was through the impropriety of it, whether it was through the sheer arrogance of the disciples, or whether it's a combination of the both, the disciples were generally defensive about Jesus and who came to him. They even become defensive of people who are talking about Jesus, but not quite in the right manner, and so they want to rain fire on them. They had a real protectiveness of their master and who they deemed could be near their master. So they beg him, send her away, for she continuously cries out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she came up, knelt before him, saying, Lord Help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. As his disciples beg, make her go away, he finally responds to her and essentially says, I am not for you. I'm for the house of Israel. Now, we already know he's healed Gentiles. We already know he's talked about the disciples eventually going to Gentiles earlier in this book. So what is this about? We do know there is a progression of God's salvation going out throughout history from the time of Genesis 3 all the way until now. One of the things that Jesus is speaking of here is is the gospel is going to Israel first. And yet we see that Gentiles during this time who come to him are healed, are delivered, are faith. Faith is rewarded, if you will. Yet, he's never pursued the Gentiles. It's always been in the midst of his ministry, primarily to Israel. So what's happening here? Because it can be confusing if you, hey, he's already healed Gentiles. Most commentaries, most scholars throughout history think textually, and I agree, is that this is more than anything here a test, a test of both the woman and a test of her disciples and a test of all of us and how we view mercy. The disciples didn't care that her daughter was possessed by a demon. It's the, that's no small thing, right? 
That's been shown to be extraordinary in nature, even within the ministry of Jesus. They see this woman who they had all kinds of natural prejudices against saying things they've never even heard people in Israel pronounce. Immediacy, understanding who he is. He is Lord. He is son of David. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He alone is going to be able to show mercy and heal my daughter. But all they want is her annoying voice to end. So Jesus turns and tells her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she turned around and goes, okay, that's not me. No. It says she walked up, knelt before him in a posture of worship. All propriety, societal propriety would have, was out the window. She didn't care what the disciples thought of her. She didn't care what the people in the city cared about her. This would have been a public thing, just like the centurion. She goes before Jesus and puts a posture of worship by kneeling before him. Lord, help me. You ever feel disconnected from a faith like this? You ever feel in your life as you go and go and go and this is my routine and this is what I do and yeah, I'm praying and yeah, I'm reading and yeah, I'm going to church. But there was once a time you had faith like this. There was once a time where No matter the circumstance, you knew where to bow. You knew who to go to. And you knew who the only one who could show you mercy. We often hear about, in pseudo-reformed Calvinistic, independent evangelicalism, I know it's a mouthful, about things like revival, reform, right? Those are, those are things in our ancient history that we like to point to. But did you know that all of those movements started with people recognizing the depth of their rebellion? And the depth of their rebellion and the depth of their sinfulness, believers leading them to take a posture like this once again in their life. Like when they were saved. God, help me. Are you in a place like that? I hope you are. Because like the song we sing, his mercy is more. Don't be content. Don't be content with a life 
I keep saying this, of spiritual mediocrity. Be moved by this. These were the men Jesus was, has handpicked to lead his church. And they're in need of a lesson in their own arrogance. Watch this woman who your first view of was, I don't want to hang out, I don't want her to hang out with my kids. And she shows them what faith looks like. She knows her own misery. She knows her own estate. She knows the only hope for her and her daughter is to fall on the mercy of God. And there he is right before her. And the disciples are saying, make her be quiet. And that's what you do to yourselves. There's my sin. It's right before me. It's holding me back. Be quiet. No, don't be quiet. Fall down. Beg for mercy. And he has more than you can imagine. Lord, help me. And he answers her by calling her a dog. It is not right to take the children's bread, meaning Israel, and throw it to the dogs, meaning the Canaanites or the Gentiles. There's two words for dog in the Greek. One is a wild, feral creature. The other is a pet. Jesus uses the word for a pet. Now, the the disciples are probably like, yeah, that old teacher, let her know who she is. She's not a child of Israel. She's a dog. Oh, he's not done. See, his lesson isn't for her. It's for them. It's for us. She's already there. She keeps pursuing him and annoying his disciples. And finally, she stops him in his tracks. And she kneels before him and says, Lord, help me. And then Jesus tells her, I can't give the scraps to dogs. Look at her response. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus answered, O woman of great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And your daughter And her daughter was healed instantly. Now think of the majesty of this encounter that God has superintended. The intellectual elites of Israel cannot contend with Jesus verbally. No matter what they try, he knows their thoughts. Here God has made an instance of teaching for the disciples and for Christians for all time about true faith. And then look what happens. Jesus gets into a verbal interaction with an unclean, unwashed Gentile who is worshiping him, and he keeps rebuffing her away from him. And he goes into this dialogue of, I can't give food to my children, that's meant for my children, to an unclean animal. And her response is, I'll take the scraps. Even the dog gets the scraps that fall off the table. 
Jesus tells her, great is your faith. Do you see it? She's not a wild, feral dog. She may be a pet. The illustration may be valid, but she doesn't care because she's in the household. Her master is right there and right in the position where she would be now down below him. That is the illustration he gives her. And she's like, sounds good to me. I get the scraps from Messiah's table. Hallelujah. We often use the illustration of the children coming to Jesus and have childlike faith. Maybe we need to have a dog-like faith. Psalm 123 talks about a slave and the master and how the slave is just watching the hand of the master. And the backdrop of that is during the time of the exile of Israel. And during the exile of Israel, when, when they were slaves both to Babylon and to Persia, both empires would have slaves that wouldn't be allowed to talk. They had to do things according to hand signals. So they had to watch the master's hand. And so as this psalmist, and it's a psalm of lament, is considering their own estate, they illustrate their own estate and how it relates to God. I wait watching the hand of my master. Is that you? Do you have the faith of arrogance? Look where I am. Look how much I know. Look at all the stuff I do. That faith is not commended. Look at the faith that's commended. All societal breaches, peer pressure, none of that matters. What matters is that Messiah is before me. And in him alone will I find healing and mercy. And in the independent, pseudo-Calvinistic, reformed, independent, I said independent already, I'm going to do it a few times to get through. Church world, if there's anything that is so pervasive, it's this identity that the need for constant mercy is for those other people that go to church. It's for those other churches with the light shows and the smoke machines. It's for the churches that chant, not us, no, us. Be honest with yourself and your estate in life. Be reminded of your need for mercy. I know all of you and me are sinners. I know all of us struggle with sin. I know all of us sinned this morning. I know most of us probably didn't ask forgiveness for that. All of us will sin later today when we watch too much TV. By the time you go to bed tonight, how many times if you're honest with yourself, will you break the law of God? How many times will your thoughts stray to things that are unclean? How many times will you treat your spouse or your children or your neighbor or your friend 
in an unchristlike manner. How many times will you look at something today that you should not? Don't think you need mercy. You have all the mercy you can get. You have to be honest with yourself. Bow before God. Ask His forgiveness. Repent of sins against each other and God. Come clean to whom you have to come clean with and be amazed at the faith of a dog. The Master will care for you. The Master will feed you. And the Master has a place for you. Now, we're called to look like the Master and not the world. O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. If you are outside of the faith, if you are not a Christian, I tell you this morning, the message here is simple. Man is broken and sinful, and that includes you. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't be good enough. You can't do good enough. And all you'll do is deceive yourself that you are. God calls you to repentance. He shows you his majesty in nature. And he calls you to repentance through the Son. Fall before Messiah. And ask for mercy that you might be free. If you are not a believer and you want those things, I'll, I'll be up here this morning to talk with you afterwards, and so will Bo. Now is the time, church, to cast aside idols. Now is the time, church, to put to death. all of the nonsense, all of the worthless things, and dedicate yourself to Christ. Heavenly Father, we are in need of mercy. Too often our faith is small. Too often our eyes are not on you. God, I pray you remind us of your magnificent mercy. Lord, may we through the Spirit's conviction and the power of the word... Right now, beg for your mercy. Confess our sins. 
in the next minute or two. I want the congregation to do just that. Pray to God. Confess your sins. His mercy waits you. Lord, I pray, pray, guide us, Lord, in your graciousness, in your mercy. Thank you for challenging us through the gospel. I pray we feel challenged. I pray we feel comforted even more so by the power of the cross. And that your love for your people transcends to such a way that we cannot fully comprehend. And so we are just gracious. May we sing our gratitude to you now, Lord. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.